comfortable and just settle into the room and get ready to start the show. If there's anything that comes up for you while you're sitting there, maybe that can be one of the first things we jump to as we start the conversation. So with that said, um, let's do it. Adi and those listening, just uh, let's take 10 seconds here, create some space and focus on our breath. All right. Feels good. I always want to go longer when we do that. I, I wouldn't mind 10, uh, 10 minutes of silence. That would be fun. That's a, that's a good place to start with something we talked a little bit about um, is your experience with meditation. Um, and selfishly, I think that's where I'd like to start the conversation. Um, I'm pretty new into meditating myself. I've been doing it for about two and a half years on and off. I've tried some different variations and found things that have really worked for me and some things that really don't work for me as much. So just curious to hear a little bit about what meditation has looked like for you um, and how you've gotten started and how you've continued to incorporate it in your life and what that looks like. Well, if you th just think of meditation as contemplation, prayer, contemplation, and introspection, which is, you know, essentially how I approach it and define it, meditation. Right. If you just think of it in that way, you know, it's something that's intrinsic to the, to the soul. It's something that's always there within all of us. And I always think of meditation that way. It's not the, an elite activity that we, have, that we learn how to practice and that's <clears throat> only for a few people to to practice absolutely uh, it, it means uh, awareness of the self uh, contemplation of the higher self or the supreme self and um, prayer introspection so those things are always there so in that sense you know based on that definition i would say you know the depending on how uh, introspective or contemplative we are we're always meditating from the earliest of ages right um, and even if we're not setting out to specifically meditate, I think you're saying that there are times where we may be in a meditative state where we're deeply thinking about something that we've done or something that we've said. And maybe that's kind of an underlying voice that's always there um, in some capacity. And I think when we take the time to meditate, we give the time and space for that voice to be in the driver's seat and we get to stand back and see where it goes. Um, we get to see where does our mind go when we don't control it. And when we just let it run, f <clears throat> excuse me, run free, we can see the places that it goes and try to label those places and understand the emotions or thoughts that are helping to drive them. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But another important thing to always consider is that, well, there are different as levels of understanding the truth, obviously, and there are different um, qualities of meditation, different levels of meditation right so for example uh, a moment of meditation on the form or name of the supreme person may be vastly superior to thousands of years of meditation on say a candle or right. the breath mm -hmm. uh, so it, everyone's meditating it, aren't they uh, infant is meditating on the mother and on the the bottle 
vultures in the sky or meditating on carcass and right. how to how to get their carcass for the day. Uh, that's a meditation. Uh, it might not be a very high level meditation. Right. So if we're sincere about functioning on on the highest level, it's not really the highest, it's the original or purest level. If we're interested in the the most original or the most pure level of activity, then we should be looking for that highest or most pure type of meditation. And what are some ways that help you achieve that? I know you talked about focusing on the breath or focusing on a candle. I know there are forms of guided meditation out there. Um, there is imagery where you close your eyes and you think of a place that brings you a lot of peace and comfort, or you think of a beach or a nice sunset. Um, what are some of the methods that have been most effective for you to achieve that highest state? Well, we can talk about what the, you know, what the higher types of meditation are, but the important thing first is to distinguish between the physical body, the, the gross physical body, the subtle material body and, and the self, the soul. Right. Because if we can't distinguish between ourselves and our mind and our intelligence and our ego, and if we can't distinguish between ourself and this body, then our meditation is very limited. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as like a a mechanical practice or a, a, you know, a technique, um, the scripturally speaking, according to the Vedas, the most highly recommended um, process for self-realization in this age is uh, meditation on or chanting of the holy names of the Supreme Person or the holy names of God. And depending on your uh, tradition, your geographic location, or what tradition yeah. you might come in, you, you w- uh, will most certainly have different names for God. There. Mm-hmm. They're more numerous than our names for the sun. There are thousands and thousands of names for God. But yeah. um, but chanting and meditating on the uh, transcendental sound vibration, we can put it that way as well. Um, generally, the highest transcendental sound vibrations are names. Names of the Supreme Lord or his associates right. like that. Mantra. Mantra. Man means mind and tra means to, to deliver. So mantra is not just a, a, a slogan or a motto that we live by, but it's, a, it's actually a sound vibration that elevates the consciousness just by, through contact with it. For example, <clears throat> the most highly met recommended mantra for, for the age that we live in is the Maha Mantra, which is 16 names of God. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. That's 16 names, and you can meditate on that. To simplify it, um, like when we did our 10 seconds of silent meditation, Mm -hmm. um, you may just meditate on the breath, but um, for me, if I meditate silently like that, what immediately springs to mind is the syllable OM. And that's a type of mantra meditation, simply meditating on the syllable OM which you don't really have to know much about it. It's clearly the uh, uh, a universal vibration. Right. It, and when you're meditating on OM, is it something that you're consciously thinking or you're making that vibration intentionally? 
you may consciously think <clears throat> of it in the beginning, but um, as you become accustomed to the principle or the the omnipresence of Om, the vibration, mm -hmm. then you, it's more like you're just becoming aware of it. Right. You just become aware of it, um, and you know because it's there and it's primordial. It's um, you could say everything is created from sound vibration, and that sound vibration is the syllable Om. Krishna says that in Bhagavad Gita, I am the syllable Om in the Vedic mantras. Okay. So um, that syllable Om, just just uh, to feel it, to be aware of it, and to to feel it is is enough. You could vocalize it. But whether you vocalize it or not, it's there and you can be aware of it and meditate upon it. Absolutely. That's great. That's very insightful. Um, yeah. So something else I wanted to talk about, and it's slightly related, is your experiences with Vaishnavism, which Vaishnava is a, a branch or a sector of Hinduism. Is that right? You could describe it that way. Okay. I would describe it differently, but sure. But that, that would be... Um, a scholarly uh, or academic way to, to maybe categorize it. Yeah. yeah. How would you characterize it? <clears throat> that Vaishnavism is based on uh, uh, adherence to and, and reverence of the, the Vedas in their original form and that it's not a branch, but it, that it's based on um, uh, direct and literal interpretation of the Vedas. Okay. So you could call that... Uh, fundamental. Um, some people have described it like that. Sure. But that's the and the reason we make that distinction is because <clears throat> Hinduism is a very large umbrella um, that that encompasses a lot of different practices that are guided by different scriptures and different teachers and different uh, different ideologies. So I mean, there's just. Um, that doesn't really give give you a very specific understanding of what the what the practice is. Sure, and, I still think and, that helps though. That kind right. of helps reel it, it in a little bit. It does. It helps you to give an idea. That's why I say like from from an academic point of view, it's you can put it in that category. But, right. Um, I guess you could consider Vaishnavism uh, a Hindu sect, but we consider Vaishnavism as uh, eternal devotional service to the Supreme Person. So it's sure. not a sectarian principle. Yeah. In other words, if, if someone is uh, sincerely practicing Christianity with devotion to the Supreme Creator and all of their activities are involved with that, that's bhakti yoga and it's a type of you know, falling under the Vaishnav line. But it's not from India, it's not Hindu. Right. Uh, Another term that we use is Sanatan Dharma. Like we we're familiar with the term Dharma. Dharma means nature or or yeah, um, um, yeah the duty or the nature of a th of a thing. Sanatan meaning eternal. So when we say Sanatan Dharma, we mean the the eternal nature of a of a thing or the eternal occupational duty of of us as individuals. Okay. And um, you could also say that that's the one eternal uh, true religion. You see what I mean, and that's not something that's sectarian or, right. or that can, that uh, any one particular group or um, nationality can lay claim to. It's an eternal principle, devotional service. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying on that. When did you start um, practicing Vaishnavism? Is that something you practiced when you were living overseas? I <clears throat> I, I started learning about about 
uh, Vedic culture and Vaishnavism when I was about 16 or 17. And I was living in Illinois, but I had gotten Bhagavad Gita and started studying Bhagavad Gita and um, related books and scriptures. So like that. And, and I started really trying to practice that around the age of 17. Okay. Yeah. And something that might be helpful, I don't think I gave you really an opportunity at the top of the show, but is there anything that would be helpful for listeners or viewers to know about you going into this conversation? Is there any little elevator speech you have prepped, anything that's helpful for people to know about you? No, not really. I don't have any any sort of uh, formal introduction or speech for myself like that. I tend to introduce myself and speak for myself with my guitar. So most of you that see me out and about in public um, just see me speaking with my guitar unless you, uh, you know, chat with me in in between uh, sets or something like that. Uh Um, But I'm a pretty friendly guy. I don't go around talking about... uh, Vedic scriptures and Sanatana Dharma all the time, but when the subject comes up, I find it to be the the most important type of discussion. Sure. So when the opportunity arises to talk about such things, then I'm I'm all about it. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. But you know, I could talk about Miles Davis. We talk about the, my guitar. Yeah, talk about being in the, the local forest where. Uh, waterfalls and caves and such are so abundant, and, yeah. or the different countries of the world. Um, you know, that I've seen and that may influence my music. One thing that's along the the lines of what uh, the theme of your show that you might not even know about is, and I'm definitely into talking about it, is um, the loss of my brother, and who was 14 months older than me, and um, the connection for me personally and deeply uh, with my brother in, in music. Yeah. Um, we were musicians together. <clears throat> uh from you know from the from the start picked up the ukuleles together you know started poking around at the keyboard together um got guitars at the same time started playing guitars together so um you know i it's my brother carl 14 months older than me we grew up in illinois um almost like twins because we were uh i don't know if you should say inseparable but not separated for right. for always so many together. years. Yes, I mean, we we shared the same uh, room. He always slept above me or something like that. Yeah, and uh, so when we got into everything together, we got into baseball together, we got into this together, that together. So when it came time to get into music, guitars, and such, we got into that together. And I don't think I would have gotten into it the way that I did if it weren't for him. I probably wouldn't have gotten into it as um enthusiastically or aggressively as i did because he was as far as picking up gear checking out gear things like that he was always a lot more um uh enthusiastic with it or like you know aggressive with it with getting things (laughs) um anyway we learned we learned how to play together but you know we, we we went separate ways or i went my own way when i hit that age of um 17, 18, went off and became a monk. Mm-hmm. And we'd never played together after that. But I'm just saying, when I when I look at this equipment, like when I look at my guitar or I look at any of this musical equipment, it I, I just see my brother in it. Yeah. There's a, a connection there. Yeah, I know what you mean, and I can relate to that. 
um, a lot of my earliest music gear was gotten for me by my dad. Um, so when I look at that Fender Strat that's sitting there at the house, that's what I can think of is him getting it for me and the love that comes through that. Um, and that's a gift that I think keeps on giving when you have something like that, that you can relate to somebody um, and remember them through music. Right. Um, how old were you when you lost your brother? Well, he was, I think he was 32 and I was 31. Yeah. I'm 40, I'm going to be 44 in March. So it's been a little while. Yeah. Um, what was the experience of losing him like? Where were you um, at that time in your life? Um, did you live locally or did you have to deal with that from afar? Well, I was in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in the Philippines for five years, 03 to 08. My mom's from there. She's over there right now. Okay. Um, my wife is from there. My first daughter was born there. Second daughter born here in Asheville. Okay. But so I was living over in the Philippines, and um, he had, fortunately, <clears throat> he came over to the Philippines, and I guess it was 07, and I was able to spend a good solid week with him while he was over there. And I hadn't really been around my brother or spent time with him for years and years. Right. Um, honestly, because I'd been a monk and had been all over the world. It'd been about uh, over 10 years since I'd even been around him. Wow. Very much. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> it was nice that that we were able to spend time together and do some of the things that we in, in, enjoyed doing. Um, I found it uh, frustrating that because for me, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty enthusiastic about um, things that I love doing in this world. I have a lot of interests and I enjoy pursuing them. I think that's could be clear to anybody that observes like how I live my life. I mean, I, the hardest thing for me to do is, is to decide which one of these awesome things I want to pursue. But my brother wasn't feeling that he was feeling, uh, kind of, kind of bitter, kind of, um, like he, he didn't have anything that he wanted to fulfill or wanted to pursue or chase. So, and, and, and I know that very well because I spent hours with him balancing things off well why don't you try this no i've already tried that uh, have you tried this yeah i've already tried that it didn't go so well for me why don't yeah. you go here what am i going to do there why don't you stay here what am i going to do here um so hard for me to relate to and hard for me to to accept um, sure. that was probably the most frustrating part of it then he went back to um he came back to the states he actually left his body in um uh, in a trailer in alabama that's where he passed away and then um, he was cremated, and my sister brought his ashes to the Philippines. Okay. You know, they're ashes. Yeah. So what was your experience like when when you had that time to reconnect with him? Were you able to rekindle at all that love that you both had for music um, or any of the other things that you shared growing up being inseparable? Yeah, we didn't try to play music together. Yeah. But uh one of the <clears throat> like he he left a lot of CDs with me and turned me on to a lot of music just in that short period of time that he was there. Mm-hmm. Like one of the first things that we did was he popped in this um this old Beastie Boys 
documentary. Um, I, I can't remember what it's called, but they like they passed out high eight cameras to all the crowd in Madison Square Garden, and they and then they had edited all the film that the crowd shot, and that's how they made oh, it. Wow. Yeah, it's a really cool BC Boys um, DVD that was out, and this is like 10, 15 years ago. Right. I haven't seen that one. That sounds pretty neat. Yeah, I'll find out what it's called. Cool. But yeah, so we did that. Yeah. And just hung out and talked a lot, caught up a lot. It's funny though because we, me and my brother, would get hands on quite a bit. You know, we used to scuffle and stuff like that. Nothing unusual for brothers, but right. it's just funny how that's kind of like embedded in. It's woven in, in into the, like the very fabric of our relationship. Right. And so when I was with him as grown men, and now I'm like 31 and he's 32, we went hands on again, meaning physically scuffled a couple of times. Really? And I'm like, what is this? I don't do this with people. You know what I mean? <laughs> he put it, he grabbed my collar one night. He grabbed my collar over, you know, it was a dis- disagreement about nothing. Oh, man. It's like, where is this coming from? He grabbed my collar. I stood up, knocked his hand off my collar, and I just kind of, you know, squared up against him. He's <laughs> like, oh, it's going to be like that. Huh? I was like, whoa. I was like, only was with like, your brother could that happen. I was like, yo. And I said it. It's like, I'm not 12 anymore, right. Carl. You know, right. like, it's not going to go down like this. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that's a little about my brother. About my brother Carl. Um, he doesn't have any songs recorded or released, but you know, we made our first albums together. Yeah, you know, we made cassette tapes, drew up little album covers. Ah, that's cool. Stuff like that. What you yeah. draw on them? Oh well, I mean, we had so many. I, I remember the first band that we had together was called Ace of Spades. Okay, that was his that's idea. A badass name. He was a badass. He he was a badass dude. He had a had this little fedora, and he had an ace of spades, the card of death. He kept that kept that in the like the band of his fedora. Oh, nice. And he was like ten, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But yeah, so we, he was always into heavier music, and his friends were too. So yeah. they they got really into you know the the hardest and darkest metal that they could come up with at the time. Right. And I was running with that for a little while, and then I discovered the blues. And when I discovered the blues, then it started to change everything. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you when you discovered the blues? I mean, when I really discovered it yeah. in, in my heart and, and got into vibing with it, I guess I was probably 14. I think I was in eighth grade. Okay. Yep. And who was it that turned you on to it? Was there a particular artist or somebody that <clears throat> you just know, grabbed your ear? I got to give credit um, that I, I don't know if I would have gotten into the whole world of blues if it wasn't for Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. But, you know, from Jimi Hendrix, I got into Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Willie Dixon, John Lee Hooker, uh, Robert Johnson. And those right. those are all those five names that just shot off the top of my head. Those were the biggest ones that affect. And then Hubert Sumlin, who played guitar for for Howlin' Wolf, he yeah. became like my 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 guitar hero or guitar idol there through a lot of my um, teenage years. Yeah. But a lot of time. Um, just going through their tapes, and that was my my main connection initially with blues music. Is a, alone in the bedroom with the tape player, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf tapes, playing along. Cool. And at what age did you start playing the guitar? Oh, I started playing guitar way before that. I, okay. I mean, we we started picking up guitars. We had we had these little ukuleles around the house from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. They're coconut shell. Yeah. My brother ended up. It, we had. I had one with a single coconut shell. My brother had one like that. Yeah. My sister had one with three coconuts. That was made with three coconuts. Yeah. My brother ended up breaking one of those over my leg one time. <laughs> oh my but God. that was like the first instrument. Yeah, he yeah. left a bruise for like a couple months. I'm sure. Chased me around the house and broke that thing over my leg. <laughs> um, I told you. <laughs> and, 
But uh, my mom always had a guitar, like a classical nylon string guitar. Uh -huh. And we always had a piano or a keyboard in the house. She usually have a piano. So we started, I was picking up guitars early. I think I, I, I started actually learning stuff properly when I was mm, nine, maybe. Okay. I got my first electric guitar when I was, I think, nine or ten. And I had already been taking lessons for a little while at the time. Nice. The lessons didn't go very long or very far or very deep. They just yeah. get, just got us started. Yeah. Did you find that at that age you were able to keep your interest in something like a lesson, or was that not fun to you? No, we were into the lessons. I um, <clears throat> I don't know what it, it was fun to us, but at just one point he he just said that that was all he really had that he wanted to show us. I don't know if we weren't learning at the rate that he wanted us to be learning or what exactly it was, but he actually kind of terminated the lessons at one point. So we were like, okay, that's cool. We didn't stop playing. We didn't stop learning. Right. And, and like some of the stuff that he gave me, like he, he gave me pentatonic scales, mm -hmm. you know, basic blue scales on, on a worksheet. And I didn't really... I couldn't make any sense of it when I was in his class, but I remember finding that in my closet several years later. And then, you know, that, that just revolutionized my whole guitar playing world right there. Yeah. And it all like, clicked oh, for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was like, dude was trying to tell this to me, yeah. um, you know, several years ago, but I, I wasn't ready for it. That was my experience with guitar lessons when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old. I would mm -hmm. go, he would give me a scale to work on and a song that I would request. He would teach me how to play a song all the way through. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'd focus maybe 95% of the attention. It's like, I want to get this song down. This scale thing's not fun. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but um, so, so what was your, your primary way of learning material? If it wasn't lessons at a young age, was it just playing along with some of the tapes that you were listening to? Yeah, playing along with music that we were listening to, that we wanted to, uh, learning music or bits of music that we wanted to learn. I just learned a lot from my brother and from his friends. Um, like, they would be writing songs, let's say, like, going back to the time we were maybe, like, 11, 12 years old. They were writing a lot of songs. So I would learn the songs that they were writing and, like, learn new chords like that. Uh, kind of a group effort. That's cool. In a lot of was it wasn't a lot of sitting around by myself. I, did, I spent a lot of time by myself with the guitar. Yeah, and that was learning, but it wasn't structured. Just pick, picking around, learning about tones. I remember just sitting on my bed a lot, holding the Stratocaster up to my ear. I, I did that a lot as a kid, you know, just mm -hmm. just to hear the tones like directly within the wood. Right. Hold it, just put it up to your ear. It's so nice. And I probably played more like that than I did through an amplifier. Really? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, one, it's an one, intimate way of playing. One early uh, lesson that I got with a guitar, I was just thinking about this the other day. My first guitar was a was a full size like Stratocaster uh -huh. co copy. I remember sitting on my bed with that thing and banging the top of my guitar with my big buck tooth oh, and putting man. like it, it was a fairly new guitar and putting like this gash in the top <laughs> of my guitar like this big buck tooth gash oh, in the top of my, and i remember lamenting about that and being like oh you know oh shucks you know just put a gash in my my beautiful guitar I remember my brother saying it's not he said they're tools they're it's not a piece of jewelry man <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's like, and uh, you know, I started looking at the stuff differently yeah. af- after that. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm not supposed to worship the tool. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's like a lesson that I got after my dad got me the Strat for Christmas um, back when I was probably I don't know 17, 16 years old. Um, I was using the whammy bar and it cracked the lacquer on the guitar. Ouch. And it was like the second day that I had it and I was really upset and I showed him and his response was, it's not going in a museum, you know, this thing's to play. It's going to get yeah. beat up a little bit. Right. And that's, yeah, when I kind of took a different look at it as well, because yeah. you want, you know, you it's your baby. You want it to be in good shape and you want it to be protected, but things are going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can only protect them so much. Yeah. Do you remember any of the really old tunes that you would work on with your brother and your older and in some of his friends? Um, I was just thinking about that the other day where I went way back in my memory bank and thought of some licks that I wrote when I was like 12 or 13 years old. And I sat there and played some of them and I was like, man, I can't believe I remember this. Yeah, I can still play several songs that that my brother or my brother and I wrote when we were just like 10 or 11. I could do a whole set of songs that we really? wrote. Uh-huh. What kind of stuff was it? He he was writing, he wrote this whole song just just bashing the PMRC, which was Tipper Gore. That okay. was the thing at the, the Parents Music Resource Center and Music Censorship at the time. They're the ones that started putting those uh, parental advisory okay. labels on the, back in the, the late 80s or whatever it was. Right. And that was all over the metal albums that we were buying and all over the, the rap albums, that, the yeah. gangster rap stuff that was just starting to come out. And so he he gave that a little piece of his mind in one of his songs about the PMRC. Yes, like that trying to be dark and stuff yeah uh, and in, in other cases but yeah i can remember a lot of the songs that we wrote it's fun to go back down that rabbit hole sometimes and go play yeah. some of that stuff and see what it brings up for you it goes back a ways i started with viola in fourth grade and was studying that formally so like yeah. the whole stringed instrument and learning songs thing it goes back a ways so. yeah but i do remember like really early on with guitar learning the day tripper lick Mm-hmm. That was one of the first licks that I learned. But as far as like early, early days, um, jamming out with the friends and garage band stuff, I always thought that the the Black Sabbath uh, uh, standard tunes were were the best. And a lot right. of people used to seem to be on the same page with me about that one because you could just rock out those ar- like Paranoid, oh yeah, Iron, Iron Man, that yeah. kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sweet Leaf, yeah, because they're yeah they're they're pretty easy to to learn and to play, and a lot of people know them. And they're fun. They're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to go wrong with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of what I was raised on. My dad was listening to still Black Sabbath and Motorhead and Led oh, Zeppelin yeah. and Rush. Yeah, that's cool. So that's a lot of what I listened to growing up. Mm-hmm. Sent me down a weird turn um, in the teenage years. You know, all the heavy metal stuff and darker stuff that's out there. But yeah. Hey, there's a lot of good music in there. There is. There's plenty. My mom bought us a Kiss album really early on. Yeah. Um, Kiss record. The first album that I ever bought for myself was Thriller. Um, when that, when it came out, I oh, bought the nice. I bought the the double the double LP. Cool. I still got it. It's the only record that I've got in my house right now. Really? <clears throat> wow. The same one that you've had. It, yeah, the over same the years? one. Uh, somehow, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm I haven't been able to hang on to anything <laughs> over the years, but somehow that record's come back. That's really cool. Yeah. Neat. But yeah, it was a must-have for a kid like me back then yeah <laughs> i'm sure 
How old were you when that came out? I don't know, eight or something yeah. like that. I remember bringing a Michael Jackson magazine to school one time and bringing it out at recess and getting mobbed by little girls in like fourth grade or something. They were like ripping pages out of my magazine, oh my ripping gosh. it away. So I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. I just, my mom just bought this for me at the grocery store last night. Yeah. You know, it's all ripped up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, Michael oh, Jackson's Michael Jackson. too cool. Yeah. They were nuts about him. Yeah. So I, I know you said before that you grew up in Illinois in the Chicago area. Um, you've moved around quite a bit since then. Um, what place feels like home to you? Do you? Is there a place that when you go, you get that feeling and sense of being home? Is it back in Chicago or is it here? Is it the Philippines? What, what does that look like for you? Well, as long as I've been interested in self-realization and the science of the soul, I've, I've been pretty... Uh, I guess determined about the idea that you should feel at home wherever you are. So uh, okay. I, I try to feel at home wherever I am. Not saying that I necessarily succeed. Right now, Asheville's home because I've got my my wife and my um, daughters here raising yeah. raising a family here, and we've been here since two thousand eight. So it's definitely home, and this is where our where our house is and everything. Yeah. So on the in that most basic level, yeah, this is home. As far as sentimentally, I I don't really do that too much i've lived in a lot of places when i used to move around a lot um my my biggest challenge was every place i moved to i i want to stay there it was funny like I, i've been to mm. i don't know hundreds of temples around the world but every temple i ever visited i'd be in my mind thinking hmm wonder what i could do like for service if i stayed here i wonder right. how i could serve and i like this temple i like I like the people here. I like, you know, I like yeah. the everything about it. I wonder if I could live in a, one of those little rooms and help out in the kitchen. You know, yeah. I'd be, my mind would start turning like that. Yeah. I'm just like that. I like every place. Yeah, but I was born in Southern Illinois um, and mostly raised in Champaign-Urbana, Central Illinois. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, moved moved to went to a temple in Chicago when I was like 18, and that's when I uh, where I kind of became a monk. It wasn't planned. It wasn't planned. No, it Tell wasn't. Tell me about that. Well, I had I was familiar with the philosophy. I had been studying the books and chanting, and I had been going to the Vedic Cultural Center, like a little preaching center in my hometown. But, I mean, my plan was to move to the Philippines. I had this whole whole other plan that had nothing to do with becoming a monk or okay. anything like that. Yeah. But my friend uh, Bhakta Umesh, who was from Chicago, he said, why don't you come up to Chicago? We're talking about like an hour and a half or whatever right. away from, from where we were. He's like, why don't you come up there? There's this uh, festival, the festival of the Lord Nishingadev. It's coming up. It's going to be a big festival in the temple. So I went up there with him, spent the night in the temple, um, decided <clears throat> since I'm here spending the night, I might as well follow the, the full temple program, including the two hours of chanting and, mm -hmm. and everything else and waking up at three in the morning. Let me give it a, give it a shot since I'm here. I found it to be very blissful, and uh, it was during your first experience. Yes, my yeah. f my first time um, um, visiting a, a big temple, mm -hmm. and I had a very strong feeling or, or resolve that this is what I want. Uh, I want to stay here. I don't want. I don't want to uh, look for anything else. This is what I want. Yeah, at least for right now. You know, I, in, in my mind, because you got to remember, I was 18 or 
19 or whatever. And, and I, I was a dishwasher at an Italian restaurant uh-huh. in Illinois. And I, and I was thinking, I could just stay here and wash dishes for Krishna for the rest of my life. That would be so blissful, you know. I'm like, and so that was my intention, but that's not how it went because right. when I when I joined up with the the movement, they had other ideas for me than washing dishes. And what did that look like? A lot of teaching. Yeah, a lot of teaching, preaching, educating, however you want to describe it. Um, and that meant a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm for me so for the eight years that i was a monk most of the time i was traveling right in in several different countries which was cool because i had that desire to travel and see the world right like a good adventurous young man and i would say that all of my desires for travel were um, fulfilled in in my early 20s to the t- to the point that by the time I was 25 years old, I was like longing to settle down somewhere. I had traveled enough. Right. I felt like I had traveled enough. Do you still feel like that way now? Yeah. That you've traveled enough and you can stay settled for a bit? Yeah. I'm still adventurous. I'm still interested in exploring and seeing yeah. different places. But but as far as that in- initial uh, youthful desire to go out and, and travel and explore and see the world it was definitely fulfilled i got yeah. to live in several different countries got to um acclimate and, and get into speaking different languages and um just a lot of different types of travel um in india i've traveled in every every conveyance imaginable and been to some amazing places amazing temples if anybody knows what the kumbha mela is it's the largest religious gathering of human beings on planet earth it happens uh, the big one happens once every 12 years i've been to one of the big ones and one of the smaller kumbha melas how many people are at one of the big ones well the one that i was at they said that there were uh, 10 million people there kind of coming and going over the course of the event it's a several day event it takes place at the at uh at Allahabad which is at the confluence or Prayag which is the confluence of the Ganga Jamuna and Saraswati River where Mm -hmm. those three come together that's where that uh, Mahakumbha Mela takes place and it's cool because you see um, all different um, spiritual practitioners, religious groups. You see a lot of yogis who don't normally appear in public, um, who okay. would, but they would come come for an event like that. Right. Um, so you see a lot of people coming down out of the Himalayas. A lot of different teachers with their students and things like that. It's kind of fascinating. And where do they host that event? That's in uh, it. You know, the the event is focused around the confluence of the river and bathing in the confluence of the river. Okay. There's a story behind it, but uh, basically you attain liberation by bathing in the confluence of the river at that particular uh, time frame. Okay. Got it. And... And so people come from all over just to just to take a dip in the water at that time. Where they stay is, you know, that, yeah, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. Right. I wasn't even supposed to go. We were actually on a train from from one uh, city to another, and um, we stopped at that at that uh, train stop. And I looked out the window and put two and two two together. I woke up my traveling companion, and I was like, "Hey, it's Kumbamela, and and we're in in Prayag." 
I was like, let's get off the train. He didn't want to. Yeah. And I was like, come on. I convinced him. Like, let's come on. We can get back on in a, in a few days and, yeah. and continue on our way. Let's get off the train. Come on. So we did. I'm glad we did. How long did you end up staying for? A few days. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of people. And I had to I had to physically fight to get back on the train. Probably at that at that I mean, I didn't punch anybody, but I had somebody trying to use my backpack to climb on oh, which would have meant that I would have lost it so I had to right. like, uh, get in this off. tug of war like yeah. wrestling match with this guy because it's, it's like that it gets like that in, in India sometimes mm-hmm. you have to um, shove and wrestle a little bit to get right. to get where you need to get to yeah it's a different different system over there <laughs> yeah. there's not a lot of like please excuse me sorry that yeah. kind of thing it's just uh, you just wrestling make, match you make a beeline for where you need to go and you just plow through right Oh man, that could be tough to tough to experience for the first time if you're not used to that. It was tricky for me. I I reacted. Um, you know, you got to remember, I was a monk. I was wearing saffron robe, shave head, everything. So, uh, by by all standards, the appearance of a holy man, and should have the con- conduct of one as well. <laughs> but I had a couple times. Well, hey, what what could I do? You like <clears throat> that was one time I was at this uh, this festival, and, and there was like four or five guys that were together, you know, like a little gang. Right. And they they walked by me and one of the dudes um shouldered me, like shoved me. And I reacted like you would, you know, in Illinois if right. five guys were walking by you and one of them shouldered you and shoved you. And they were so confused. They were looking at me like like what is your problem? You know what you like they didn't mean anything by it is all I'm trying to say. Right. It's just a it's a cultural difference. Yeah. <clears throat> Out of all the places that you've been able to live, do you have one that you, I don't want to say is your favorite, because I I know you said you can um, find something to love about anywhere that you are and make home essentially wherever you are. But is there a particular place that you'd like to go back to or one that really has a special uh, special connection with you? I'm not longing for anything. Right. Um, This is a good day right right here yeah (laughs) and um that's what we've got so i'm not longing to go back to anywhere uh i i don't have any plans to to really travel um back to any of the places that i've been before got lots of family in the philippines lots of people that we love in the philippines um so maybe go back there one day but no plans to one thing i'd really like to do and this is the only travel plan that i've really got in my mind it's it's all with music that's yeah. one of my objectives with music is um, to to be um, regularly or constantly in demand to perform in other countries on, yeah. some, on some level, you know, in, in European countries or maybe Asian countries or you could be anywhere, South American countries, any country where they'd be willing to host me to come and play my guitar for a couple of weeks at yeah. a couple of different locations. So I've got to put that together at some point. But maybe somebody out there can help me with that. Yeah. Let's throw it out there to the universe and see well, yes. See yeah. if there's anybody out there that can help out with that. But I think that would be a really neat thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, would your plan be to go and play some countries that maybe you've already lived? Or do you want to go see new places? Yeah, I'd like to see some new places. Yeah. To see some new places. I'd like to, to travel and visit some places. But just I just don't travel like... Like right. I used to. For sure. Right. So something we, we were talking about a little bit before when we first got into the studio 
was the fact that you have shied away from busking a little bit in the past couple of years. So for anybody listening who doesn't know, busking essentially the act of performing on the street. Um, it's something that's not legal everywhere. It is legal here in Asheville, and you can catch people doing that downtown. Um, a lot of people may have known you as a busker or a performer earlier in your career, and it's something that you've stayed away from and I think redefined yourself as a as a performer or a gig artist. Can you talk a little bit about what that decision was and um, your relationship with busking now? Yeah, um, I, I didn't shy away from it. I just stopped going out there. Yeah. Um, I, I stopped going out there as a regular practice and, and a means of coming up with money, which I was, I was doing in the beginning. It wasn't so much about the money, but it was really using it as a, as a stepping stone to get the attention of venues that would invite me inside. Yeah. And that's obviously why a lot of people go out there and play because they're hoping they're going to get recognized by someone and, and picked up, maybe invited inside to play. So once that started happening and then I had a few places that were inviting me inside and I start to look like a legitimate musician, not that street musicians are not, but I mean, sure. pe- people look at you differently when you're, when you're playing out there, at least for me, they did. That's why I started like trying to dress uh, sharp and, mm-hmm. you know, as nice as I could from the beginning, just to try to make it clear that I'm out here because I got some music that I want to share. Yeah. I'm not out here because, um, because I need some sympathy, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people, they see a busker and, and they'd, just kind of assume that you, know, you don't have anywhere else to play or that nobody else wants to hear your music. Uh, you know, like you you should be on a stage not sitting here on the corner. Right. Well, maybe I just felt like coming and playing some music on the corner today. Yeah. And if I go out again, it'll be just completely like that spontaneously and, or, you know, just kind of like because I want to go out and, and play and do something. But here's the thing. Like I play on the street. It's like I play at Carmel's. Um, I play there every Wednesday night through mm-hmm. through most of the year, and that's an indoor outdoor gig because they have that that corner there. So I'm, yeah. I'm I'm playing on the corner. So a lot of people still see me playing there every week or see me playing at Sunny Point Cafe, and it look looks like I'm busking. I don't know if technically that's that's busking because um, I'm street performing, right. but I'm also hired by the by the venue. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Slight distinction, but yeah, I yeah. don't think it's technically busking, probably. But as far as like busking in Asheville, it's awesome, and I highly encourage any anybody. I mean, it's getting a little crowded out there. Yeah, but uh, you can still find a spot, and you can still find your audience. Um, so anybody that for me, it was perfect. I had an idea. You know, I wonder if anybody would would be into this. If anybody would want to hear this. When I first started going out, I was almost hiding, like trying to find little, yeah. little. Uh, spots and stuff where I could sit where I thought not many people would see me. Yeah. But then I got lots of good encouragement from the beginning. People saying, you should go over there. You should take that spot. Come on. You know, that kind of stuff. So I just started, started rolling with it. Yeah. It's, it's worked. It worked out well for me. Uh, busking is as far as being able to, to get hired into, to playing other gigs. It worked out well. I, I got other gigs just right off the street like that. Yeah, I think it can be a really good stepping stone for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, just like you said, for getting recognized or for just kind of spontaneously capturing that crowd in the moment. It can be a really interesting thing um, when you're just there with your guitar and all of a sudden there are 20 or 30 people standing there watching you because they want to be there. Right. Um, 
Do you think you could share a piece with us? I Is sure that can. a smooth enough segue? It's into... smooth enough for me. <laughs> cool. I'd love to hear something. Yeah. Uh, what is it that you're going to play for us? Uh, this is a piece that I wrote called Treetops. It's going to go on my next album. Cool. The, the one that will come out in 2020. Sounds great. Awesome, man. Oh, you like that? I like that a lot. Cool. That was called Treetops. That's right. 
That is cool, man. Yeah. Really a nice combination of this just bluesy and almost neo-soul kind of feel that you have going on with a lot of your jazz scales and just really nice combination. I really like the fusion that you have going on oh, there. Oh, thanks. That's cool. I appreciate it. Yeah, I love that piece. Yeah. I, I love playing it. It's my favorite thing to play right now. I was a little nervous there at the beginning, but yeah, that's what that's yeah what I'm really vibing on right now. That's really cool. When, uh, when did you come up with that one? Uh, about a month ago. Cool. I've got another one that's uh, it's more recent than that. Uh, really? Yeah, that I'm working on right now on the, uh, you know, in the studio. But this one's like ready to go. I gotta just pretty much gotta record the main guitar part, and it's ready to to put it on a on a record or whatever. Nice. Kind of already know what I want to do with it, which is like that. Do you have a thought for your next record? Because I know you have a record on Spotify. Um, you did that with Bobby Sachs, right? right? Yeah. Um, similar kind of feel for the next album, or what do you no, think? It it'll be. I mean, I, I'm I'm progressing, evolving, and um, so hopefully you'll see some some growth and improvement in the overall you know quality and expression and and uh, it's a little bit I mean some of the songs are I guess the same style like kind of what I'm playing right now yeah that um, the main four songs that I'm thinking of as the core are similar to that in cool the, similar to what I just played yeah. Mm-hmm. But I won't have a sax player on it or anything like that. I'm going to do this next album all by myself. Nice. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like it. Do you have a studio that you're thinking about working with? or? Well, I have my, my studio you... at home. Okay, perfect. And I like working at home. I'm yeah. definitely open to working with other people. Uh-huh. So if anybody wants, you know, wants to talk about uh collaborations or any other approach at recording, that's that's cool too. But other otherwise... I've got plenty of work to do yeah. right there at my own house. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. What do you do for um, drums and backing instruments and stuff like that? Do you have a drum machine or do you... I have I have an electronic drum kit. Yeah. And so I'm recording a lot of my drums with that. The one. Cool. So I will use samples if I find one that I like, but I like to record my own drums. I, I might um, uh, hire a drummer for this album. That'd be sure really what cool. I'm gonna do, but I'm nice. thinking about that, uh, trying it out for a couple songs. Yeah, and I, I'm also on uh, an an album that uh, an artist friend of mine has made in in England that should be coming out. Uh, it's being released in in London by February or March. Okay. In 2020, so I should be on that as well. I'll be on a couple albums here. Uh, That's awesome. In 2020. Cool. So it sounds like you have a lot planned for 2020. Um, anything coming up? locally show wise or anything else that you like to promote or shout out well i can go just uh let you know the the remaining dates that i've got for the year it's yeah just please a, do just a few tomorrow night which is the 18th i'm at carmel's kitchen and bar which i mentioned that earlier that's yep. at the grove arcade i i'm actually there every wednesday night it's an indoor outdoor year-round thing except for the month of february and a little before and after they okay. got they got to shut down the seating area right but anyway i'm there tomorrow uh, and generally every Wednesday. And then on the 20th, I'm at Rustic Grape Wine Bar in downtown Asheville. That's a good spot. Yeah. I've played there a couple times. Excited cool. to go back. Uh, that's uh, 7 to 9 this Friday on the 20th. So come out and see me there. If you're listening, uh, 24th, I, I'm at the Library Lounge at the Inn on Biltmore. Biltmore oh, Estate. Nice. Um, that's uh, Monday. And then that's a 3 to 5. So okay. it's like the Monday before Christmas. Yep. I do that. And then I've got a couple shows at Whistle Hot Brewing Company in Fairview, which I play there on average about uh, three times a month. Oh, so I've nice. got one on the 26th and one on the 28th there, but that's an awesome spot in Fairview. I haven't been out there yet. 
Yeah, it's a brewery. Cool. And the tasting room is uh, is a bright red caboose oh, on nice. train tracks, and they've also got a box car out there. And uh, during the cold temperatures, I play in the box car. Uh-huh. Warm time, we play out on the deck. Oh, cool. Yep, it's great. Neat, man. So that's what I got for this year and uh, next year. Just yeah, more shows, recording, putting out more music, and just playing. I'm all about the live performance and playing. So I just right. try to fill up my calendar with live performances. So yeah, that's what that's what I do as many as I can. That's awesome. It could be a little bit tougher, maybe this time of the year. I'm imagining mm-hmm. um, as things maybe slow down a little bit for the winter. Right. Um. Um. The the last three winters I've produced albums okay so that's kind of what i'm expecting to do but i'm always fighting trying to fill up the calendar as much as i can definitely january uh february and march so if anybody has any anything you know give me a shout because uh i was trying to fill up that calendar definitely in in the summertime it can it it was pretty full for me last year um yeah, and Adi, you're used to playing for pretty long sets, right? I mean, two, three hours sometimes. Yeah, I've got I get booked for two hour shows, three hour shows, and four hour shows. Yeah, um, I'm cool with all of them. I do think two hours is is the best. Yeah, because um, you're not trying to stretch it out right. for for any reason, and it's it's not it's nice uh, just from an artist's point of view. Definitely the way I look at it. But I can understand why if you ha- you have people dining in your establishment you would want to have nice music for three or four hours yeah so i try to provide that sure thing cool man is there another piece that you'd like to share with us before you go or i can do a little blues piece for you that'd be really cool yeah i'd like that a lot so again for those listening this is Adi the monk you can check him out on instagram at at Adi underscore the underscore monk um, check out his website at adithemonk.com Right. Yeah, and I've always got all my show schedules on there too. If you want to come out and catch a live show, that it's always on my website, Instagram and Facebook pages. Cool. Well, I'll definitely be coming to check out a show soon. Oh yeah. For sure. I'd love to see you out there. Yeah, man.
Awesome, man. Thanks for sharing. All right. That was Adi the Monk again. Uh, thank you for joining everybody. That's about all the time that we have for today. But again, this was Breathing Room, episode five. Thanks for joining. And Adi, thanks for joining me today, all man. Right. Really it appreciate it. Here. Thank you. Yeah. Until next time. And don't forget to breathe. Thank you.